Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Casey Vanderstrict of MIT Solve, a marketplace that connects social entrepreneurs around the world with both the MIT innovation ecosystem and an extensive member network of organizations such as Nike, the Gates Foundation, and Microsoft. Casey runs the recently launched Solve Innovation Fund, a philanthropic venture vehicle that allows MIT Solve to support their entrepreneurs at multiple stages of their journey. The fund is both evergreen and revolving, which allows for a number of advantages, including an increased opportunity to align the objectives of the entrepreneur with the investor, and it allows for successful exits to be paid forward to the next generation of solvers. During our conversation, I asked Casey about the unique fund structure and how they landed there, the innovative types of funding they provide entrepreneurs, and her advice for entrepreneurs looking to raise capital. Let's jump into the conversation. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Excited to be talking to you. To, to kick us off, can you tell me a little bit about MIT Solve? Sure. So MIT Solve is a marketplace for social impact and social innovation. We find, source, select, and support the world's most innovative entrepreneurs who are laser-focused on solving the world's most pressing problems. We run an annual competition where we host open global innovation challenges. More buzzwords we can add in there is always good. (laughs) Uh, But fundamentally, we look for entrepreneurs that are working in economic prosperity, health, Uh, sustainability and learning. And then we bring those folks into our community and support them through transformational partnerships in three categories, funding and financing opportunities, corporate and strategic support, and of course, uh, involvement in the MIT ecosystem, be that through technological support or lab space or expertise and mentorship. Uh, So fundamentally, we're focused on bringing partners together, and that could be partners from lots of different places across the ecosystem with the solver team at the core, uh, these cutting-edge entrepreneurs that are coming from around the world. And what what are the the 2020 grand challenges that, that these organizations are trying to solve? And how have they been completely turned on their head over the last five or six months. I imagine yeah, that's a great interesting point. Year. Yeah, so the world has changed in the last mm-hmm. six months in a pretty substantive way. So every year, let me give you a little sense of how we develop them and then the big reveal I can share with where we are for 2020 and sort of what we're thinking about for 2021. And we typically launch, as I say, four challenges, one in health, one in economic prosperity, one in learning, and one in sustainability. As of March, we actually launched a fifth challenge this year focused on global health security and pandemics. It is okay. not specifically COVID-related or focused, um, partially because of the timing, so because of our annual cycle, we wanted to make sure that we were inclusive and we weren't so focused on COVID that we lost an opportunity around uh, health security um, long-term vision and systemic impact uh, and so that some of these entrepreneurs may have solutions that are applicable in later stages of a pandemic or even uh, might be applicable to sort of a future global challenge. So putting that fifth uh, bonus challenge aside this year, typically we work with our network and our members 
to drum up ideas about what's important to the field and what problems are really facing entrepreneurs, but society more broadly that are relevant to our community. So that includes conversations with funders and with investors, with entrepreneurs themselves, and of course, with corporates and other ecosystems players to say, okay, what problems do you see out there in the world? And where is their entrepreneurial uh, momentum that might actually be able to drive measurable impact against some of these challenges? So we start those conversations over the summer and we narrow in on specific themes. And then based on feedback directly from our, our member network, we're able to refine those themes to launch the global challenges. So that's a very long way of saying, <laughs> drum roll, please. The current <laughs> challenges that we're, on which we're evaluating solutions for our economic prosperity pillar, um, we're looking at good jobs and inclusive entrepreneurship. For our learning pillar, we're looking at learning for girls and women. For our sustainability pillar, we're looking at sustainable food systems. And of course, for our health pillar, we're looking at both health security and pandemics, as well as maternal and newborn health. So really interesting categories. I think it will be interesting for Solve to see moving forward. We are sort of building our understanding of uh, sustainability. And so there may be, uh, for example, sort of a 2.0 challenge or a slightly different take on a, on a theme that we've launched. So for example, next year, there's strong indication that we will continue a global health security and pandemic challenge through 2021. Although we're just in the, in the storming phase of developing our challenges for next year. Got it. And, and how is it different than like a traditional accelerator that's also providing funding and, and, you know, capacity building and such. Yep. So you picked up on the nuance that we use the word marketplace to describe our work rather than accelerator. And that's purposeful. Uh, The most obvious reason uh, that we are different from a traditional accelerator is that we look to support solver teams and meet them where they are rather than making an offer that is standardized across each of the teams. So when a solver team joins our network, they complete a robust needs assessment. And then we look to really develop Um, opportunities that are relevant to the team based on where they are in their growth cycle. And that, of course, includes funding opportunities, much like most accelerators, but it also includes, as I say, strategic and corporate partnerships uh, that are really targeted to help a team grow, as well as opportunities to connect into the MIT ecosystem. And that multi-pronged approach, I do think, is a differentiator, especially because it's paired with the member network structure. So we really believe that our network is the most important or the differentiator as compared to other accelerators or other, call them like opportunities, if we were to broaden beyond the accelerator term. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty remarkable when you attend a Solve event, because we have two big events, our pitch day, and then Solve at MIT, sort of our flagship event. You really do see a diversity of attendees. You see academics and researchers. You see founders. You see other entrepreneurs who may be later stage and looking to connect with both other entrepreneurs, but certainly um, thought leaders in the space. You see investors. You see donors. And that's because the solver team is the core of what we do rather than just sort of the investment opportunity itself. Last year, you launched the Solve Innovation Fund, uh, a standalone venture fund that that supports these solver teams that you're you're pulling in from around the world. What what was the challenge that you're trying to solve when you when you launched the fund? 
Yep. So we've gotten to my favorite conversation because as it all pertains to me, and this is my particular, my specific <laughs> this is role. Your baby here. This is well, my your baby. baby. Your yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. This is actually, this baby is older than my real baby, um, <laughs> which is kind of fun. So a couple of things from the beginning, we recognize that to attract really strong entrepreneurs, um, funding opportunities are, are one of the core reasons that folks are attracted to an opportunity or an experience like MIT Solve. Uh, we also recognize that Solve is an initiative of the president of MIT, uh, President Reif, and that we are trying to bring some of the MIT network outside of the campus gates and really connect folks who might not have access to that network to some of the benefits of, of that world. So what that means from a funding perspective is that often prizes or grant capital is the fastest way to support some of those entrepreneurs. And I'm sure you and I will get into this because we have a lot in common, I would say, um, <laughs> about being excited about sort of impact investing and opportunities mm-hmm. and we can get into all of that. But what we recognized was that even with over $25 million in grant capital brokered by Solve um, and directed to our Solver teams over the last three to four years, funding continues to be the main constraint for our Solver teams. And the profile of a Solver team is really a team that has a prototype. They've been working on their solution for, call it, four plus years. Maybe someone has been working on it full time, but they're building their team. They have a business model. Many are revenue generating, but they're just not sure how to commercialize or scale. And so the average team is is raising between $500,000 and $5 million. They're really in that sort of late seed, early series A place. And I'll even draw an analogy. Our nonprofit firms are very similar. They've been working for kind of four or five years. Um, They're often looking for somewhere in that low million dollar range in terms of funding. uh, And they're just not quite sure how to access that capital. So we recognize that the investment opportunity was huge in terms of better positioning our solver teams to grow and move across a capital continuum. So we can actually connect them with grant funding to help them really support the innovation and the exploration. And then we can participate to help get them over the hump or what what has often been referred to as the pioneer gap um, that's sort of post-philanthropy pre-growth capital. And as a part of that, we can help coach up the solver team so that they have a sense of how to engage with more traditional investors moving forward. We also, frankly, from from our perspective, we've structured, and we can get into the structure, but we've structured the Solve Innovation Future Fund as an evergreen vehicle. So we are actually a philanthropic venture fund. We raise donations that we take to MIT Solve, and then we deploy those donations in the form of a grant. And we reinvest, or excuse me, in the form of an investment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we reinvest those the proceeds from each investment into solver teams, future solver teams. So that evergreen vehicle, that evergreen uh, structure is really important to us to align the incentives of solve and our entrepreneurs. So we can be entrepreneur friendly. We can really think about what the right structure or the right type of investment is for each team. And we can help sort of offset the need both or the resource intensive nature of grant fundraising, grant-based fundraising for both the Solver teams and for Solve as the parent organization. So that was the need that we were responding to. We kept hearing this constraint and we've kind of developed this structure to better align incentives. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's kind of like a revolving equity fund, it sounds like. Absolutely. It's not It's not dissimilar from that. So this incorporates a lot of different funding mechanisms, obviously, mm-hmm. grant capital, equity, debt. Um mm-hmm. 
how did you get into this work? I'm wondering if your prior experience helped kind of land on this, this yeah. hybrid structure. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I do think that's something that in impact, I think, is more important than even a more traditional or private sector focused investment role, because we're building this as we fly. This is all new. And so mm-hmm. really feeling connected to the work and, and being open to trying things out is really important to helping the field grow. Mm -hmm. So my journey actually started in a very traditional private sector role. I was working in management consulting, um, really trying to build a skill set or a toolkit of traditional analysis, analytical tools that would hopefully help businesses get better and grow. I knew that I wanted to be involved in mission-related work, so I I jumped to nonprofit work, actually working for education-focused nonprofits or reform-focused nonprofits, um, both abroad and in the U.S. And what was really wild when I made that jump was to see that I felt as if it didn't matter whether a company was for-profit or an organization was a nonprofit, funding and financing drives a lot of decisions. And that those are really strategic decisions that impact the way a company runs on a day-to-day basis. So I started to essentially say, is there an alternative to grant funding from a nonprofit perspective that would allow a company to grow more strategically rather than in a reactionary way to align their incentives with the incentives of the donor? So it's really it's really tempting as a nonprofit or even as a social entrepreneur to take a grant that you know, 10% can be used towards your core work, but 90% has to be used for a whole new arm of, or a whole new business unit. And that's really hard to build a sustainable business if you're if you're trying to appease every donor along the way. Um, so I got into impact investing, investing as, as really an exploratory effort to understand alternatives to traditional philanthropy. And I was lucky to start that work at a time when We were moving beyond ESG screens and really thinking about creating value. And so I had, you know, did did a little bit of work thinking about how foundations could make for-profit investments alongside their big bet grant making work. Um, I worked, spent a summer working for an ed tech PE shop uh, and landed a group called Social Finance that structures social impact bonds and other impact instruments where financial outcomes are tied to measurable results. And so that allowed me to really understand the impact side of the house and get involved in some of the more traditional financial structuring. And I made the jump to solve because if we want impact to continue to grow, we not only need to continue to experiment along the capital continuum. Um, so the work that we're doing on the super early stage for-profit work at Solve is really interesting because we're pushing the envelope and we're doing some new stuff um, that hasn't necessarily been done before in terms of investing via alternatives like revenue-based uh, or revenue-linked agreements or revenue-sharing agreements. But also we can move a little faster. And so I'm you know, coming up on a decade and impact, getting impatient. And so I love the venture work because it moves really fast and you're betting on people. So it's really about connecting smart, thoughtful, passionate people with the right type of financing. And so it's been a nice journey for me to, to really see you can use some of these private sector practices, traditional venture investing, but in new ways and, and hopefully act as a proof point for the field so that others can do this and get involved in the work moving forward. Yeah, there's a. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the fund structure because I think yeah. that's really interesting. But but you just brought up another interesting point, which is the 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 funding structure, right? The yeah. the way that the capital is is conveyed to the 
the entrepreneurs and the expectations that go alongside that capital. You know, a lot of times there's an expectation of an exit within a set number of years or um, a transfer of power from the entrepreneur to the investor. What are you seeing in terms of different funding structures? And and I know it's early, you just launched the fund last year, but how are you seeing, uh, what are you seeing in terms of the the success both for the entrepreneurs and the the investors. Mm-hmm. No, so you're exactly right. So a part of the reason, if we say why why hasn't there been a lot of sort of creativity in venture, or why is there not, and on the financing side, and or why is funding not flowing from those traditional sources to these social entrepreneurs? It's really twofold. Often, social entrepreneurs are working in really hard to serve communities or with hard to serve customers like refugees or with the otherwise abled, or they're working in emerging economies where there just isn't as much liquid venture investment as there is in the U.S., especially in sort of San Francisco, Boston, New York. Um, Mm -hmm. So recognizing that, why has that not happened? Well, you've, you've actually hit the nail on the head in the question. The return expectations in the portfolio construction requires exits, uh, fast exit Mm -hmm. opportunities, and a huge number of bets. Um, So you've got to take a lot of bets, and those bets have got to grow really fast, or at least a couple of them have to grow pretty fast. From an impact perspective, if you are focused on serving these other populations, you may grow a little bit more slowly, and that's okay if you nail the business model. That's not to say these are not potentially market rate investments. I believe that they are. They may just need a longer time horizon to get there. And some of the examples that we use, one of my favorite is, is Tesla and impact investment. Super interesting, right? Because in terms of EV adoption, they're pushing the envelope more than anybody else. But how did they do that? They served fancy people who want sleek cars at the front end, and maybe eventually EV adoption will be so broad that it makes it easier for you and me to go then drive an electric vehicle. Wouldn't it be interesting if you had flipped that and you had started with some of the models that were essentially more accessible to you and me, and then moved upstream. So a lot of our solver teams are doing that, right? They're serving the base of the pyramid. And then there's actually an opportunity to serve a client with a little more discretionary income. Um, that might be someone that you could, you might move upstream in that in that way. And there are interesting questions that you have to look at impact from both of those perspectives. But if we recognize that sort of time and scale are the two pressure points for why venture hasn't been flowing towards these social entrepreneurs, you pretty quickly find that traditional growth equity may not be the right tool for the stage at which these companies are functioning. So we have done a lot of work with our solver teams that really just involve listening to say, okay, where are you and what do you need? And what we hear is one, I need, I need to understand the language of how to commercialize and how to raise funding with that orientation. So I don't know necessarily how to talk to a VC about my post-investment compensation strategy because I haven't had one. <laughs> I've been bootstrapping this and I'm in it because I really care about upskilling veterans. And I don't know how I'm going to compensate folks with stock options. So there's one part of the alternatives work that just is saying, let's help develop your vernacular and your business model in such a way that you are appealing to follow on funders. And then from a financial perspective, how can we support you without necessarily 
uh, providing capital that's so expensive that you're no longer attractive to companies in the long run, which is what we've seen, especially in emerging economies, right? Capital is really expensive. Um, and that makes it hard to have an entrepreneurial ecosystem. So we've really leaned into certainly participating as a minority investor as necessary so that we can be a term taker and help get deals over the line. And then we've also developed a perspective on revenue-linked agreements as a form of investment that aligns incentives. So as the company makes more money, we get paid back faster, which is great because we can recycle that capital and reinvest it in future solver teams. But that also is less expensive than traditional growth equity. So we're not taking you know, an 8% stake in your company for $150,000. We're saying repay us and we'll let you go on your merry way. And hey, we'd love to participate in a future round. And so that's been that's been fun. And I think it's important to have the that sort of multi-strategy perspective where if a company is uh, one of our first investees is a essentially an inventory management system that plugs into SAP, that's a company that might actually be a good fit for growth equity. But if you're operating in sub-Saharan Africa and you're building a franchise model of healthcare clinics for low-income populations, um, high growth, expensive equity is probably mm-hmm. not the way that you should be fundraising, uh, at least for the interim. So we've tried to really be flexible on that. So that I assume that ties back into the the structure. I think you described it as a, a philanthropic investment vehicle. So you're yeah. combining the nonprofit tax status yeah. with the for-profit investments into these yeah. these entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. Why did you decide to to structure it that way? Yeah. So this is the fun part. This is how everyone can get involved um, because we do, <laughs> which is right. This is what we're always trying yeah. to do: is get more yeah. people into the field and drive more funding towards these teams. So we are, we're structured as a, or I've described a philanthropic structure. Functionally, we're actually structured as a donor advised fund, which is essentially an alternative structure to a foundation that allows for an individual to open an account with a public charity that is a designated donor advised fund, which means you make a donation, you take the tax deduction in the year that you made the donation, and then you hold that funding in an account until you're ready to grant it out. And there are no disbursement requirements. So DAFs have gotten a somewhat bad wrap uh, in the last few years because there's over $110 billion sitting in DAF accounts across the country uh, at various DAF sponsors. And so when we were exploring structures for Solve Innovation Future, we looked at lots of things. We looked at a traditional growth equity fund. We looked at a hold cult structure. And we found the DAF structure because we recognized the benefit of using philanthropic capital to allow us to be entrepreneur friendly while we also are able to take advantage of a source of funding, this $110 billion of funding that's really just sitting in DAF accounts and not being used until it is granted out in the form of very traditional grants. Instead, it's while it's invested, it's typically passively invested often in mutual funds or other potentially impact-focused funds, but not actively being directed towards social investment. So we saw this huge pool of funding and we saw that the source of the funding actually allowed for us to do some of the work that we were hoping to do for our social entrepreneurs. And we said, this is it, we found the solution. And we think that we can act as a proof point for the field by demonstrating that by making investments out of your DAF account, 
directly into social entrepreneurs and then recycling that moving forward, we can open the world or open the doors or prove or demonstrate, choose your own adventure, how this can be done by the individual. And DAF accounts actually can be opened often with very low minimums. So it makes it more accessible, again, for you or me to be able to to do this on our own. And whether that's through sort of aggregated channels where someone like Solve Innovation Future actually directs the investments and their donations to us. Um, Or if you, for example, you know, saw the Beyond Meat IPO and wanted to participate it out of of your DAF, that you could do that. So we're hopeful and excited that this can be, that Solve Innovation Future can be a proof point for the field and help to sort of loosen up the DAF market and be a new source of funding for social entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So if I invested in I, th- I think you you maybe mentioned it, but if I invested in your donor advised fund, would mm-hmm. I have control over like the deals that those funds are being, the social entrepreneurs that the funds are being invested in? Great point. Not at this point. So the way that the Solve Innovation Future works, um, okay. and I think is is nice for some donors, is we have essentially a, a dual governance structure. So we take donations to Solve Innovation Future, and then an investment committee that I lead directs those investments or makes recommendations. We actually use a donor-advised fund sponsor called Impact Assets, um, who's the sort of largest impact-focused DAF sponsor on the market. They manage about a billion dollars under management. And those folks ultimately quote, own the assets and then direct those investments. However, at sort of an intermediary like Solve Innovation Future um, is a really nice way to do two things. One, get access to pipeline. And so if you are small sort of donor advised fund or if you want this to be a part of your annual charitable giving, we are a pipeline. Um, We do the work of sourcing entrepreneurs around the world. This year we had 2,600 applications from 135 countries and we'll select about 35 to 40 solver teams. Um, So we've sort of done the hard work of sourcing the teams and then structuring the investments. And then we loop in donors through a second uh, governance structure called the leadership circle. And that team not only helps guide the portfolio strategy, so they're the ones who say to me, okay, you're over-indexed on health teams. What are you doing on sustainability? And what are the impact metrics that you're trying to achieve? Uh, But they also help engage directly with the solver teams through mentorship and, and other supports in such a way that, we essentially provide both pipeline and connectivity. If you wanted to do this on your own and you have the time and the energy to go source some of these deals, certainly you could make those investments directly out of your donor advised fund, as long as your donor advised fund sponsor allows for those direct investments. So that's the sort of number one question I would make sure if I was an individual who was interested in doing this work, would ask of my donor advised fund sponsor, can I make direct investments in for-profit teams? Um, not all donor advised fund sponsors do that. Got it. Um, can you give an example of a solver in your portfolio and, and maybe how they've used the various capital sources or, or you know, opportunities on the capital spectrum that, that you provide? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, a couple come to mind, but since I referenced the uh, team that's an inventory management software, um, give you a sense of who Stephanie is. So one of our first investees, the name of the company is Queen of Raw. It was founded by a woman named Stephanie Benedetto, who's a New York native, first-time entrepreneur. Um, I should say that we are, Solve is actually 52% female-led across our portfolio, which we're really excited about. And as you can imagine, diverse racially, racially and ethnically therein, um, especially given our global focus. But Stephanie 
started the work by building what she saw as a marketplace for dead stock. So dead stock is effectively textile um, or fabric that was used, that was uh, woven, <laughs> that was created um, for textile, for, for any purpose that you would use fabric for, right? So whether you're a fast fashion brand or you are a car maker, you're using textiles. And unfortunately, there hasn't really been a way to either track dead stock or to use dead stock once you have moved through your production process. So there's a lot of dead stock sitting around that is incinerated and it takes a huge amount of water to actually create textiles. And so the, the fashion industry or the textile industry, um, kind of a step further is actually the second biggest polluter, uh, to only agriculture. So it's a huge problem. And, and mm-hmm. water is something that we all need and we, we need clean water to be able to live and breathe and, and be on this planet. So Stephanie started, she saw this opportunity to both save water, but also to better position companies by taking dead stock and creating an online marketplace that would allow companies to put the fabric on the marketplace and then consumers to come purchase that fabric. She used grant capital for all of that work to actually kind of build the metric, uh, the actual platform itself. As she started to grow, she realized there was actually an opportunity for the companies sort of on the upstream side of the marketplace to actually better monitor their textiles through the production process, through an inventory management process. So she went from saying, okay, I've got this marketplace that we know works and we're actually clearing materials and we're saving them from from incarceration, incineration Mm -hmm. um, long way. But now we actually have this technology platform that could grow and scale and is is a viable and sustainable business model. Now I'm ready to start to raise investment capital. So we've been working with Stephanie and are part of her capital stack, not only to to get her seed round over the finish line, but also to help her think about how to inculcate impact in this new, more traditional sort of for-profit SaaS play. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're helping her to build a cost-benefit analysis that says for every gallon of water saved, we think that this has this value to both society and to the customer, and so that she can use that moving forward and actually can hold both the company and her customers accountable to specific impact metrics. So if you use this platform, we think that you can save XYZ in water and chemicals and create new jobs in the future. So it's been really fun to sort of see that evolution. That's a very traditional one. Um, The other example that I'll use is our Axisafia team, which I, I referenced that group too. So that's a the sort of modern healthcare solution for the urban poor currently based in Kenya. Also a really interesting model. They started with saying, how do we have a clinic in a box? How can we be- provide better services to vulnerable folks who have curable disease, but just aren't getting access to medical care? And Melissa's favorite fact is actually that there are more folks who die of bad medical care within the population she serves than that die from not getting medical care at all, which is a crazy wow. thing to consider, right? right. So the team spent uh, about five years really just working on the standard operating procedures for a light asset clinic in the urban slums in Nairobi. They then expanded to using field-based diagnostics to start to drive customers or patients back to the clinic. So that was sort of uh, experimentation number one. 
through this process, they've built a data platform that gets huge numbers of data points from each of their interactions with patients. And they've also expanded to, to have a lab service that actually does the, the diagnostic testing, um, as well as a they have a chemist at, at a number of the clinics so that someone can actually go and fulfill their prescriptions all in the same system. So as you can imagine, it's a resource-intensive environment, but really important to get the standard operating procedures right. In the process, they were really working with grant funding early on. Last year, they the team realized that there was actually a franchise opportunity and the way for scale was to essentially use that standard operating procedure and apply it to independently owned clinics across the across Kenya and certainly hopefully, I should say, in other countries. And what they realized was that They might need growth equity, but in the interim, they need a bridge round. And so Melissa has actually put together a co-blended round that has some grant capital sort of at the base of the stack that allows for uh, flexibility, especially in the time of COVID. You can imagine the costs may fluctuate a little bit Mm -hmm. as she experiments with this model. And then she raised a bridge Mm -hmm. round uh, via SAFE that's pretty interesting that allows for her to really prove this franchise model while she builds up the revenue stream from the franchise. And I actually think what you might see moving forward is actually a revenue-linked agreement that allows her to scale for her next phase because she will have all of a sudden introduced a whole new revenue stream moving forward. So she, she's been able to kind of create a capital stack that reflects her needs um, and allows her to prove the model without having to grow so fast that she had to sacrifice the quality of service for growth. Interesting. Do you have any advice for entrepreneurs out there who are, who are raising capital? I mean, you're, mm-hmm. you're seeing so many of these innovative yeah. funding structures and, and capital stacks? And what, what are some considerations that they should take into account? Yeah. Have a strong perspective on what the the 10-year plan looks like, uh, if that makes sense, that is realistic. So one, everything takes longer than we think in startup world. Having worked at a number of startups now myself, um, the sales cycle takes longer, fundraising takes longer, it all takes longer. Um, so how can you realistically, without saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'll IPO in five years. Um, how do you think about actually creating a staged approach to financing that allows you to retain ownership of your company while you also have a vision that is directive enough or North Star that's directive enough that you are growing in a sustainable way? Um, and so that's that's sort of number one of realistically, and we see this with social entrepreneurs often, if you want to own or operate, that's great. But let's develop a, a financing plan over a series of years that allows you to do that without having to sell huge amounts of your company along the way. The second piece is really thinking about trying to be selective about your investor group. So I do think that looking for investors who are both values aligned, but also sort of financially aligned is really important um, because things can get really messy in follow-on rounds. Um, Mm -hmm. And so making sure that the investors see eye to eye can be really important in the early days to make sure you're positioning the company for sustainable growth in the long run. So what, what's next for, for MIT Solve and the Innovation Fund? Yeah. 
Yeah, a couple of things. So um, first, like immediate next step, we are so psyched for our, our 2020 pitch day, Solve Challenge Finals, that we'll host on uh, September 29th. Usually we participate in General Assembly Week and we have a big in-person event this year. We're rolling with the punches and we'll be virtual, but it will still be lovely and exciting to have everyone together. And that day is really inspiring and energizing to, to meet the new solvers. Uh, we're hoping to make a couple of investments by the end of the year so that we can continue to support the solver teams and sort of walk the walk of, of putting capital to work to, to push impact or drive impact for the world's most pressing social problems, most pressing problems broadly. And I think the, the third piece is that we hope, and I hope that this conversation is a part of that work, we hope to continue to serve as a, a partner to the field to encourage others to participate and to help sort of unlock some of those opportunities. Um, So we're always really excited to to get to partner with other teams, whether it's network partners or member partners or other social entrepreneurs. And it will be fun to see what that means for the long run, because I think this, for us, the DAF or Solve Innovation Future in this current structure is just step one. Um, mm-hmm. So let's prove that we can build this evergreen model. Let's do it really smartly. Let's support our solver teams. And then let's take the next step and say, okay, what next? How do we use that DAF, either a subordinated capital in a capital stack um, that is has more traditional investment dollars? How do we have a bigger fund that allows for co-investment along the way? So we're driving more dollars to our solver teams or more broadly, how can we use this to sort of spread the gospel of solve and think about, are there other teams that were maybe finalists, uh, but not necessarily selected as solvers? And and how do we interact with those folks and how do we use this, this investment ethos to sort of bring those others and support those other entrepreneurs who are doing really excellent work into the fold. So it'll be interesting to see. I think there's a, there's a lot we can do, um, but in the interim, we're going to, we're going to get to know our new solvers, hopefully make a few more investments and hopefully kind of work with the field to get others excited about what we're doing too. Is the dem- With the demo day online, um, is it open to the public? So it is not. There are sections of the demo day that are open to the public. We do have a plenary okay. event that, that folks can join. Um, but if, if anyone's interested in becoming a member or certainly supporting SIF, definitely I'm happy to be in touch with folks and answer questions. It's the, the, a big part of our work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we will link to that in our, our show notes. Perfect. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to, to mention before I, I let you go? I would, I'd sort of put out a call to action of building, um, getting more folks involved in this on the day-to-day. You know, we talk a lot about how does impact investing both continue to evolve so that we're not looking at impact investing as a separate <laughs> a separate thing that's kind of hard to understand and complicated and maybe concessionary to say, no, impact investing is just smart investing. What are we looking for? We're looking for entrepreneurs who care about their employees, who care about their customers, and who care about you know, the world and whether that's through climate and sustainability questions, or if it's more broadly about inequity and social justice, like we're, that's really what we're looking for when we talk about impact investing. And I think it is our job to continue to think about using some of the strategies that have worked for the traditional capital markets and putting them to work with sort of this new spin. Um, So I, what I'm most excited about is continuing to see sort of the growth of revenue linked agreements, looking at, for example, equity buybacks and employee and stewardship ownership and some of the stuff that made Ben and Jerry's look good 15 years ago, how do we bring that back to the fold so that more folks can participate in that? 
And we can really contribute to sort of lasting alternatives and and really matching structures to the needs of entrepreneurs and to the needs of beneficiaries and clients moving forward. Well, it's a great, great note to end on. Thank thank you so much for taking the time. I'm I'm really glad we were finally able to to do this and yeah. and uh, yeah. really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, well, we appreciate it too. And as I say, um, definitely folks should feel free to reach out and ask us questions. We'd love to get to know all the listeners of the podcast and a huge thank you to you. I know this is no small undertaking uh, and we're really <laughs> grateful to have been a part of the, of the series. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Casey Vanderstrict of MIT Solve. As always, we will post a blog on our website at socialcapitalmarkets.net, where we highlight anything we talked about during the episode, such as their upcoming demo day and resources that you can dive into if you're interested in learning more about any of the topics discussed, such as you know their innovative fund structure or the grand challenges that, that they're working on this year, or if you're interested in, in getting involved and in, in donating to the fund. So you can check that out at, at socialcapitalmarkets.net. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with with a friend, post about us on social media, and tag us at SoCap Markets. If you want to get in touch with me, if you have any questions or, or guest ideas or anything like that, you can reach me at, at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, with that, we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. <laughs>